From Bossier City, Louisiana, this is the Grouch and the Brainstorm. Welcome back. I'm Mike, alcoholic, and today we are doing episode five, step one. And with me here in the studio today, I have my co-host, Jen. Say hi, Jen. Hi, guys. Matt. Hello. And Jill. Hello. All right. So, are we ready to roll? We have discussed uh, step one for most of our recovery, I think, if if not every single day every of my day. recovery. So, uh we're going to roll into step one. And, and just so if you don't know, you're new to recovery. There's a lot of ways this can be interpreted. Uh, number one is the way it's interpreted as Alcoholics Anonymous interprets, which interprets it, which is that uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. The only step that has the word alcohol in it. And... Um, and basically, for me anyway, it's just basically admitting that I have a problem. And I'm going to discuss my experience with step one because I have a few step one stories um, later. And I think Matt or Jennifer, y'all can take it and go with whatever you want. Just step one is what we're going to discuss today. And that's a Matt. <laughs> go right ahead, Matt. All right. Well, uh, I'm Matt. Um I'm definitely an alcoholic and an, an addict as well. And so step one for me, uh, I know a lot of people, uh, since I've come into the program, I hear a lot of people say, oh, uh, I had a problem with step one. You know, they didn't want to admit, they didn't want to admit. Me personally, just me, I had no problem with step one. By the time I got here, I was done. There was no... I had no nothing to cling to to say, oh, uh, my life is still together and in any way, shape, or form. So, which I didn't know what step one was till I got in here. But when I read it and I started doing it with my sponsor, I was like, I'm pretty powerless, you know. And um, we did a, we did step one pretty quick when I filled the stuff out. I had um, I I didn't I put alcohol and and other substances before everything else in my life that came first everything else came later dad husband employee uh even taking care of myself uh on other things you know self-care type stuff none of that mattered um uh, the the substances came first and like i said by the time i got here there wasn't there wasn't much anywhere uh you know no way to go but up uh from that point on um i i had just had my tail whipped so bad i was ready i mean i was just honestly ready at that point and got in a treatment center kind of by the grace of god and they spent a long time in there and really kind of wrapped my mind around it before i ever got out and and did any steps we didn't do any in treatment <clears throat> but by the time I got out, I was fully prepared. I had made up my mind. This is what we're going to do. And, and, you know, didn't, was basically unemployed, homeless, you know, wife gone, uh, kids on, you know, nobody really wanted anything to do with me. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it was, the future wasn't looking real good at that point. So, um, yeah, I, I, step one is every day for me. I mean, every single day that I get up, if, if I don't remember anything else, I have to remember that. And that gets easier. 
Um, no matter the day I have, I can't drink and I can't use. So when I first got here, the can't, that word can't, um, that was for a long time. I can't drink and use today. I don't have to drink and use if that makes any sense. I, I don't, um, I know that I can't, but I also know that I don't, I don't want to anymore. Uh, and I don't know where that changed somewhere along this thing, but as, as time has gone on because of this program and because of doing these steps and all the things that go with it, but starting with step one and being very thorough with that. And I work with other guys and I work with a lot of people in treatment and they're, you know, just bouncing things and talking to them and they're asking things. If you do step one right, you can you can work on everything from there, but you've got to thoroughly work that step. And any of the other ones we can revisit, as Bobby likes to say, revisit. But that that's just got to be set in stone, and and it uh, the door is open from there on out. So I don't know if that helps at all, Jennifer. All right. Well, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, via circumstance. I, I didn't get, roll through treatment centers. I didn't wasn't cordially invited by a judge to attend AA meetings. Um, I literally woke up one day and my life was in a shambles. And it was just one of those things where I couldn't continue to drink, but I just didn't know how I was going to live without drinking. Uh, it was a daily habit, blacking out or passing out for a number of years. But I was in a total case of denial. I'm a thoroughbred alcoholic. I come from a long line of alcoholics. Purebred as well. Um, I didn't venture off into other party favors, if you will, outside issues. Um, I had tried a, a few things in high school. It just wasn't my thing. Um, but alcohol was my master. Uh, it was the solution, so I thought. But um, it was also... <laughs> contributed to a lot of my problems but I couldn't tell you that I was an alcoholic because I had no idea what an alcoholic was I thought it, you know we talk about it in the rooms I thought it was the people that live under the bridge with the paper bag although my dad is an alcoholic and he did not live under a bridge with a paper bag and he you know so there's this case of denial there's all of these things and um I can tell you the first time I ever drank it was alcoholically and for me to drink. The whole point was to get annihilated, wasted, blacked out, drunk. And the very first time I I, I, I drank, I absolutely fell in love with that because as far, as far back as I could remember, I just, I never fit in. I, I felt less than or apart from, or everybody else got a script. I didn't get that script or everybody had this secret to life or, you know, a book um, to live by. And I just, I just didn't get that. And so I never was comfortable in my own skin, but, you know, pour in some alcohol that looked at courage. I could dance better. I could talk to people better. I'm naturally loud, whether I'm sober, <laughs> drunk, annihilated, it didn't matter. But um, for me, that was the only way to drink was when I started to drink, the idea of drinking two of anything and going home and being a productive member of society was just, it never occurred to me that people really drank like that. Like that. I thought everybody drank yeah. to the point 
of oblivion or, you know, in, I used to say, uh, three sheets to the wind. Screw that. I was bed, bath and beyond like the entire sheet department <laughs> to the wind. And that's the way that I like to, you know, um, and for a while it was fun. It worked until it didn't. And then it got to the point where I'm isolated on my patio playing, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, fade to black Metallica, you know, debating on how I was going to end my life, or maybe it was, I just was going to create this master plan and make people think that I needed help. I don't know, but it, you know, in that delusional thinking, however, the circumstances got me to the point where I could concede that, yes, I drank too much. And every time that I drank, um, all these problems would occur and then things would pile up. And so I wake up on the morning of December 18th. And for me, <clears throat> that was the first time that I actually admitted to somebody else uh, that I needed help. So I called the most spiritual person that I knew, which happened to be my grandmother. And, you know, this is how far away from God that I was at the time. Um, it didn't even occur to me that I could pray for myself. <laughs> so I went to the most spiritual person that I knew and I asked her to pray for me. And, you know, um, through that conversation, she ended up calling me back later on. And she's like, well, you know, your uncle's in the program. She and said you, she said the program, or did she say, like, in Alcoholics Anonymous? She said, you're, well, it wasn't, the, yeah. She said, your your uncle is in the pro, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, now, like, when she said that, what went through your mind? I don't even remember. I just remember I was open to hear whatever. So, okay. I mean, I needed, I didn't feel the greatest that day. Um, and so, whatever help was being offered to me. She asked him if... She, she asked me if he could call me and he did. And, he, and we talked for two hours and he told me about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He told me about the doctor's opinion. He told me about the program and the 12 steps. And the thing that stuck out the most to me when he told me about that phenomenon of craving, about when I start to drink, my body craves more and I can't stop. And that I was a textbook all along alcoholic because I can remember walking around saying, well, I don't have to drink, which was a BS lie because if the, I didn't need an excuse to drink. If the day ended in a why, it was a good enough excuse to drink and it was daily. Um, but my, but when I do drink my, I can't stop. It's like my off switch is broke. Well, that's textbook phenomenon and craving that allergy. Um, and you couple that with the way that my whole entire thought process was just screwed. The world hated me. I hated the world. I was this lone, lone wolf, whatever. And, um, so, uh, and I mentioned the, the spirituality part, which was lack thereof. Uh, so I left that conversation with hope. I rolled into, it was the Yaya's, um, and that was where I got, I picked up my desire chip. Where's the Yaya's? It's at the Broadmoor Methodist Church over off of Uri, um, and it's an all-women's meeting. They still hit, they still? I believe so. Yeah, still open. Um, and then he told me, he told me about the Koala Club, 
and and I went to my first meeting was the one that you actually do now that Thursday night meeting, yeah. but that's when Scooter mm-hmm. did it. And it was like a big book study and there's all these cross talking going on and cussing. And I had no <laughs> clue what was it's going the wild on. West over there on Thursday. Um, it's a little different. <laughs> I like it. Though. I, I've, I've had that experience too, Jen. Trust me. Somewhere along the way, um, you know, somebody said the 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, I'm like, if I'm going to do this shit, I'm going to make it fit in my schedule. So, um, Early on, I wandered into the half past five, and that became my home group. That became where I grew up in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where um, slowly I was able to get the solution. But, um, you know, I walked into those rooms. Of course, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very long walk, walking into, you know, and of course, I didn't know, like. Where'd you sit? Where did you sit when you walked in? I believe I first sat in the second row, and the guy that used to be a horse trainer, Ed. not yes, Ed. Um, because when and it was somebody's birthday, I can't remember. Maybe it was David's. David, um, Drew's David, Drew's Drew, brother David. Yeah. Um, there was cake, and I had no clue what was going on, but I do remember Phil speaking, and um, maybe the subject was step one because he talked about that, um, you know how our body metabolizes alcohol. And um, he actually pulled me to the side of that meeting and asked me, you know, did I have a book? No. Um, he gave me a third edition, big book. Um, he, and, you know, he, he buys books and yeah. off of eBay or whatever, and he, he keeps them in his truck for people that, newcomers that roll in. And, um, of course, the book doesn't work if it's a coaster. And mine mm-hmm. stayed that way for quite some time. But, you know, um, I did the deal or I started to do the deal um, because I couldn't, there was no way that I could justify that I wasn't an alcoholic. And it was based on what my uncle had told me and what the people in the rooms, um, they didn't tell me I was an alcoholic. They told me how they came to the conclusion that they were an alcoholic. Then they told me, well, hate to break it to you sis but you know the only safe way from this deal is total abstinence but you only have to do it one day at a time yep so you can drink a whole keg tomorrow but just for today don't drink and um but not only that they gave me a solution and then they gave me the practical program of action to get to that solution and um, with sponsorship and fellowship and all of those things, um, I was on my way. Now, I will say the only thing that I did not do um, in early recovery was not drink and go to meetings. All the rest of the things, I didn't. it just didn't come very easy to me. I was still r- trying to run my own lives, and I, I'm not going to get into the other steps, but, you know, I didn't fully concede to the rest of the program. I took what I needed, which is I'm going to not drink and come to these meetings and use my sponsor as the best friend and not a sponsor sponsor. Um, but that worked for me. That eased me into submission because eventually I got to the point where, yeah, I had to make some changes or, but I have found, um, with step one, 
I have to fully concede to my inner myself that I'm an alcoholic. And because of that, my life is very unmanageable. But, you know, when I work with sponsees, I could, you can put anything in the place of alcohol, right? And even if I'm just a pure alcoholic, I always have other things that I'm trying to, do, to try to fix myself. Right before mm -hmm. I turn to the spiritual solution, I'm always trying to, you know, Do it um, yourself. the big book tells me deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, and it's it's covered up with all of those things. And I'm always by nature gonna look externally, and anything that I'm interested in, I need more of. Like the bottle says, take two Tylenol. Well, clearly, if I take six. Every three hours, the headache will go away quicker. You know, that's just the rationality or, you know, I drink non-alcoholic beverages alcoholically at any given right. rate uh, on a work day. I've got my coffee. I've got my energy drink. I got my tea, you know, water. Um, and that's just the way that I roll. I'm addicted to more. Sure. So sure. I have found that I am not only powerless over alcohol, I am powerless over people, places and things. And the only thing that I can change based on that serenity prayer is my actions and my attitudes. Sure. Very good. Yeah. Good stuff. You know, um, some people, some people I've heard say that their sponsors make them do a, uh, a written first step. I Any did. of y'all ever heard yeah, that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. No, I usually work a written first. And I, what I tell my sponsees is like, I don't, I don't need your whole life story. This is for you. This is your evidence. And sometimes it works if you give several different examples of unmanageability and things that I did when I was using or that I definitely wouldn't do sober or, you know, consequences, all of mm -hmm. those, you know, on those moments when, and especially in early recovery, when, you know, I don't have, I'm not fully submersed in the solution. So I'm still kind of raw. So I might, you know, drinking Sometimes white knuckling it, whatever. Um, and that's why I feel it's important to get into those steps pretty quickly. Um, but anyways, I that like, I could pull those out, that evidence. That's my yeah, evidence. That yeah. is my fact-finding mission on, at least on step one. Uh, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't drink because I'll end up in jail or six feet under or, you know, wake up to who the hell is this? Whatever the things that we do. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I did a written one as well, five, five, and fifteen, <clears throat> and um, and I know Jill's gonna tell her her deal here on this, but um, I always share this with a sponsor. I don't ever read them all mine, but I always tell them this one, and this is this is why I just breezed into it, and this is I still have a hard time saying this. I don't say it very often, but uh, my son Landry uh, is fixing to be twelve in a couple of days. The day he was born in Jackson, my wife goes into labor, okay? That usually happens on the day they're born. Normally, right. if you yeah. time it right, right. You know, you got to get the timing down. Occasionally, they just fall out. Here's what happens. So, it's a long delivery, and I have a child being born, okay? I'm in a hospital room. I'm sick from withdrawal, all that stuff. Family's coming in the room, everybody. I call a guy. 
to bring me some stuff up there. He doesn't have that stuff. What? Yeah, that I wanted. I said, what do you have? He said, I got the white girl, cocaine. <laughs> yeah. I said, bring it here. So you know the little bathroom where you wash your hands? Just go in, wash your hands like the doctor walks in and he steps in the room. I'm doing cocaine. My wife is do in labor. Okay? I can't function five minutes without something in my body. I didn't get sober. I'm five years sober. I lived like that for till he was six, seven, every day. Yeah. So unmanageable, all that good stuff. I'm there, bro. It was, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of that. But, yeah, when I pull that out with a sponsee and I say, this is where I was at, and they go, oh, yeah, you, you're horrible. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, yeah, so I do like it written because I get to pull that out and look at it, and I go, mm-hmm. So, anyway, Jill. Yes. All right, so a little bit about the first step. Um, <clears throat> it, it's interesting to me looking back on, well, how delusional I was. Uh, you know, going into treatment, I knew I was going because I was literally sick. I mean, I was going through horrific withdrawals uh, from opioids and um, didn't think I had a problem with alcohol because I hadn't drank in um, a couple of months. I had this reverse tolerance thing happen with the beer and I all of a sudden just couldn't even drink one sip or I got like violently ill. Um, but I knew that my life, I knew I was powerless. I knew I was unmanageable. I mean, you could look at it. Didn't, I mean, anybody could look at my life and, and see that. And even I could see that. But to me, it had nothing to do with my usage. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I was, like I said, a delusional. Um, I hadn't really looked at my addiction in any other way um, other than blaming, justifying, being in denial, uh, minimizing, whatever you want to say. I was doing all of that. So it was kind of, I mean, I like I knew I had a problem, but and I knew I couldn't stop, but that wasn't like the reason why I had problems, if that makes any sense. So um, I did. I went to treatment and that's where I did my first step one. And my counselor was like, we want you to do the five, five, 15, you know, name five ways you're unmanageable, five ways you're powerless and 15 consequences. And I was able to fill that out really quickly. And I probably could have gone on and on and, and on with every single one of those. Um and you're right. There's something about writing that down and then reading it out loud and saying that to yourself. And then the counselor's like, most people don't do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not normal because I'm going thorough. through arrest. <laughs> yeah. I'm going through, you know, DW, whatever, all kinds of stuff. Fights. I mean, I got violent. I was violent, like, um, aggravated, um, battery once and so but that was a whole nother story but actually what it was was me getting honest with myself because I'd been bullshitting myself for so long and poor me everybody was against me and you know my life was just you know uh it was just good it was just doomed I got <sighs> dealt the wrong deck of cards whatever all those kind of things and um I didn't till I didn't understand till I was done with this and actually like years into all of this 
that I was the common denominator in every single one of those consequences. Uh, and I don't think it's, it is a coincidence. I quit drinking. None of that stuff has happened. I don't get arrested anymore. I don't get in trouble anymore. Um, I don't get pulled over. Like, I don't have withdrawals. That's crazy. No, it really isn't. I just almost like, I wish I knew that earlier. <laughs> you know, but it took what it took. And so um, I like the first step. And, and there's no convincing me that even now, you know, after all these years, that I have a horrific problem. And that if I start, I'm going to go right back to the way I was using. And that was daily. And that was, it was disgusting. And I can't go back to that because I know I will die. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that will be the end of me. I also know in my mind that I will lose everything. So that keeps things real for me um, as far as my addiction goes, that it won't be good. It won't be good. Um, but that's my take on the, on the first stop. Yeah. You know, the 12 and 12, I was just sitting here looking at the 12 and 12 on here. It describes the first step as a firm bedrock. Sure. And I like that. I like the way, you know, and, and the rest of the 12 and 12, not the rest, I'm sorry. Um, a lot of step one in the 12 and 12, and those out there who do not know what the 12 and 12 is, it's just a book that we use in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's one of the books that we use. But um, it describes step one as a firm bedrock in the very beginning, but it also talks about not necessarily waiting to get as bad as some of us were. Like we bring the bottom up, you know, in early AA, you had to basically be sponsored into Alcoholics Anonymous. And generally that was a friend of a friend had to, you know, get you in there. And, um, and it talks about how that, you know, a lot of recovery has happened since that we, you know, treatment centers have happened since 19, you know, 39. And then again in 55 when this was written, but so a lot of that has happened since then. But back in the day, you know, it was looked on like if you still had a watch, you wasn't worthy enough to come to AA. Exactly. You know, and if you talk, if you think about the four horsemen in the uh, in the big book, you know, what despair, terror, terror bewilderment, and um, frustration. Frustration. If you think about those, you know, the one, the one horseman, okay, that never quite left me was despair kind of stuck around you know it's like my first day god banished the other three and he left that 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 last one though that last horseman stuck around for a while so you know i th i thought about step one way too much in in my early sobriety you know one i can admit i'm powerless over alcohol my life's unmanageable everybody and their brother knows i'm an alcoholic and it's a good excuse for all of the stupid shit that i mm -hmm. do okay Oh, don't mind Mike. He's just an alcoholic. Or, you know, seriously, you know, he got another DUI. He's just an alcoholic. And it gave me an out. He gave me probably one of the best outs I could have ever had. And um, so I get into the rooms, and I'm thinking, I've got a, a lean on these folks, right? Because I'm going to openly admit I'm an alcoholic, and it's going to blow their mind. You know, they don't have to convince me because I've convinced myself. And... And, um, and the powerless, that, that part right there, I'm going to talk about in just a second, but you know, I had the, uh, the unmanageable life and, and I've talked to y'all talked to the, in, in the podcast before I've talked about how I was a spoiled brat. 
whenever I got into AA. I was. I was just absolutely uh, just a spoiled brat. And um, so my life being unmanageable, you know, besides the fact I would manage it from one half gallon to the next or, you know, I could I could tell you how many pints were in a fifth, how many fifths in a half gallon, how many half gallons were in a divorce. I could tell you <laughs> the formulas that work throughout, you know, alcohol. But as far as an unmanageable life, the first time it dawned on me, my life was unmanageable. I had slept on plastic sheets before, okay? I had been in mental institutions. I had been in rehabs. I had been to outpatient. I had been in trouble with the law. I had been to these places that I said I would never go, but yet I did not realize my life was unmanageable until I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and thought, what in the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> How bad do you have to be to drink yourself into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? And then I look around and I'm thinking every single one of these people drank. I, I expected it to, to reek of alcohol in there first off because everybody's either A, trying to save somebody or B, still hung over just trying to get out of trouble with the wife. Matter of fact, I went as far as whenever people were telling me about the program. This is mainly in treatment. I remember <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, these two guys, they got together and one of them wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with the help of a whole bunch of other guys. But, you know, how much trouble with his wife was he really in to invent an entire program? <laughs> this guy's got to be a genius, you know. Um, I probably don't need to do all that, but, you know. But the un the uh, the unmanageable part didn't hit me until I got into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then I realized uh, normal people don't do this. Now this is this is after <laughs> you know six trips out to the bed and breakfast over there, waking up in plastic sheets, or rooming with some guy that wakes up at three o'clock in the morning, strips off all his clothes, stands on the bed, and starts doing siren noises. And all he warned me about was he does a little talking in his sleep. Hey, he did some talking, some walking, some dancing. <laughs> And he even quoted part of the Gettysburg Address one night. Wow. Yeah. But yet my life wasn't unmanageable because. Historian. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. He, is, he was. He, he was quite the character. You know, I just kind of took my plastic sheet, covered my face and just tried to, you know, get get as uh, far away. from. I was terrified in there. But but yet my life wasn't unmanageable. I'm going to do this. So but I'll get to the rooms of AA. And I'm openly admitting I'm powerless, you know, and I get that sponsor. We've talked about that and he wants to meet me and we start talking about the steps and we, we talk about step one and he explains to me, you know, you, you've got to do it a hundred percent. This is the one you've got to do it a hundred percent. And I said, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am thoroughly convinced I'm powerless over alcohol. I am never going to drink again. And he said, well, if you're powerless, how can you tell me you're never going to do it again? That kind of sounds like you have power. And I said, well, okay, let me try to rephrase that. And in my head, I was trying to be smart, you know, but realistically, I, he got me. You know, I can't say I'm never going to drink again. That gives me too much power over alcohol. Sure. But I didn't realize all that. So I did step one, and we kind of just went through it. We read the big book. That's how we did the steps. I didn't do any of the paperwork or I didn't do a written, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. about paperwork, but I didn't do a written step. And we get through all the, the hubbub of the written step and uh, I mean, not the non-written step of the big book. And then we go to step two, you know, we get into we agnostics and we talk a little bit about a higher power. Again, I'm open. Hey, 
I got a higher power. He tells me, yeah, it ain't working out for you too good, bro. You might want to figure out how your relationship's going there. And then we get on step three, turn the will and life over to the care of God. Anyway, I don't want to have to go through all the steps, but this is where we were at. We were, we were probably between three and four, somewhere in there. And we really only done a step, about a step a month. That, that was about, you know, it took me about 10 months to do the 12 steps. Yeah, me too. And here's why. At 90 days sober, I, I was around 90 days sober, and I was estranged from my children. And, and, and you know, we, we've talked before about my relationship with my children. And I was estranged from them, but me and my daughter were going to the track on a regular basis, and we're spending a lot of time exercising, and I really wanted to take her and her brother to uh, Dallas. I want to take them to Six Flags or um, Hurricane Harbor, you know, whatever it was. I wanted to do something with my kids, and I wanted to take them out of town which doesn't make sense because, I mean, we're, we're grown now, and I don't, I don't do all that. <laughs> so I really wanted to take them out of town, and me and my daughter were out the track, and I said, uh, I said, Savannah, I really want to take you and your brother to Dallas this weekend. It was like a Monday or Tuesday. And um, what do you think your mom's going to say? And, you know, she's like, oh, no, you know how she is. She may say yes today, but tomorrow she may not. And I was like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll figure that part out. And she said, but you need to get on the Internet and find some meetings. And I said, uh, I said, Savannah, we're going to be gone Saturday and Sunday. I'd, I'm, I'll be okay for a weekend. And she was 11 years old, and she turned around and she looked at me, and she said, so now you have power over alcohol? Hmm. 11-year-old girl said that to me out on the track out in Teague Parkway. It was actually one of the few days we went to Teague. We mostly went to Clyde Fant or to uh, Brownlee. And when she said that, you know, that pop of your head coming out of your ass, I heard the pop. (laughs) And I never realized, again, Dale tried to explain that to me when we were doing the step, you know. But I never realized it until I heard an 11-year-old girl tell me, you know. So I went back. You know, and I talked to Dale, and I I said, maybe we're moving, you know, a little too quick. Me and my daughter had this conversation. I didn't realize what powerless is. I said, there's nothing. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to drink again. And he said, under your own power, yes, sir, you are. Left up to you, you will drink again. Absolutely. He said, but I can't tell you you will because I don't know that. But the chances are, if you go by your track record, you're going to drink again. And so, uh, so we started the journey over maybe a little faster, you know, kind of went back through step one. And that's where I realized that, um, you know, I'm powerless over a lot of stuff. And we hear that when we get into rooms, Bay. Eh? you know, I'm powerless over, you know, whatever it is. I'm powerless over men. I'm powerless over shopping. I'm powerless over whatever it is, you know. But I realized whenever I got into the rooms that, you know, all that matters right now is I'm powerless over alcohol. I, I have to have a power greater than myself because I am powerless. And what led me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous was the unmanageability of my life. So I can't manage my, I still can't manage my life, right? I, I to this day, I'm, um, I just can't. I'm very irresponsible when it kind of, and I kind of like being irresponsible, to be quite honest with you. But when it comes to a lot of stuff, I'm very irresponsible. And, you know, I just kind of, that's not, it doesn't do anything to keep me not sober. 
I, I stay sober because I have a power greater than myself. And that's what I rely on for pretty much everything. But it took a while for me to understand, you know, what I really am in control of. I used to take my guys when I first get them. That makes me sound like I go out and grab a bunch of guys. <laughs> Come on, guys. Fucking them up out of bar seats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I go down to the local riverbank and pull a bunch of drunks out of the out of the tank. But I um, I used to have my guys take a notebook and in that notebook write down everything that they have power over. What do you actually control? And whenever I would get the notebook, you know, I, I ultimately what would end up happening is we would get down to where there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that they control, right? And I mean, it doesn't take the bite off of it. That's what the rest of the steps are for, right? That's what three, five, seven, nine, eleven, twelve. That's what the rest of the steps are for is to help take the bite off the fact that I can't accept the fact that I'm not in control. And but it all started with that. And Jennifer said it spot on is something we haven't talked about today, or she talked about, but we haven't as a group. The phenomenon of craving. You know, now, now here we're in the 21st century or whatever it is. What are we, 21st century? Is that right? Or was 22nd? I don't know. We're, we're up there in years. And I think we know now what causes the phenomenon of craving and the changes in the brain that occur whenever we are in our actual addiction. The physical changes in the brain that cause the phenomenon of craving. We've gotten there. We don't talk about it much in AA because it doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual solution. And I get that. But the phenomenon of craving is to me, compared to, I tell you, I'm going to go two weeks and all I'm going to eat is 200 calories a day, okay? And I, I know it. I know there's a couple people at the club that can do it, but I'm not pretty good at it, right? So let's just say I'm going to eat 200 calories a day, and two weeks into this, you say, hey, man, let me give you a Cheeto, and I'm looking at you like, Ooh, there's 75 calories in that Cheeto, man. I'm going to spend a hundred, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, what, 50% of my calories or almost 50% of my calories on a Cheeto, but I take it because it looks so good. And I'm thinking about it and I'm like, man, give me that Cheeto. And I eat that Cheeto and all of a sudden the phenomenon of craving kicks in. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, I have little Debbie strung out all over the house and Bluebell and bags of Doritos and Cheetos. I mean, it's just, and, and to me, that's what the phenomenon of craving was like. And I still, it still happens with me, not with alcohol. It happens with me with cookies, sweets. Anytime I ingest sugar, it's on. And it's I do it till I get sick. Oh, let me just tell you. I, I mean, I'm, what, three weeks out of a bodybuilding competition, and that's a very strict, Restrictive diet, restrictive lifestyle, and probably no sugar, right? Mm -mm. No, not even artificial sugar. Um, but I had one cheat meal because you're allowed one cheat meal after the competition. I could not close the floodgates after that. I mean, I literally thought I I was doing step one or step zero in the step study the other night, and I literally announced that I thought I was going to have to take all of the twelve steps on sweets and donuts. Because I had somehow spiritual, not relapsed on food. But I think for me, that's a foreshadow of how I know 100% if I were to take a drink today, how I would handle that situation. It would start out as, okay, I'm just going to drink two. And then the next thing I know, 
I'm way worse off than when I got here and I'm sneaking around and, and it's like I get some kind of satisfaction doing something I know I'm not supposed to be doing. Do you, uh, Matt, I'll ask you and I'll ask everybody when you think about drinking and I know I don't mean this like I'm sitting here and I'm obsessing over drinking. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll give you my example. When I think about drinking, a beer does not pop into my head. A fifth does not pop into my head, right? When I think about eating a pizza, a slice doesn't pop into my head, okay? The whole pizza, the whole case, the whole fifth. Is it like that for you? I even, I even, I know people are going to say, they may think this is, this is not right. Even when I was actively drinking, I would go by and people were like having a, barbecue or they're having dinner and they're all having a glass of wine which i don't think i ever drank wine in my whole life i wasn't a wine guy but they're like oh would you like a pinky yeah yeah i don't do all that um but they would go oh you want a glass of wine or a beer and i would literally look like just glance down and there'd be a six pack of beer and there's three dudes and i'm like where where's the rest of it like what are we doing here and I, i wouldn't drink anything not drink anything because I'm like, that's a waste. That's, I'm not setting this in motion by, with one beer, and now we have to go somewhere, you know? So, um, absolutely. It's uh, it's funny. It's funny, too, now I, I don't have the, uh, the the obsession with it or the craving with it. But it, I, I think, I and mean, y'all may experience that, but you get these weird moments as you go just here and there, just the strangest stuff. So last year, uh, year before last, two Thanksgivings ago, my ex was taking my kids out of town. I had four days off. I hooked my boat up. I'm going to the camp, not talking to another soul. I'm excited. Finally off after nine months of grind all year. I'm fired up. I'm driving out through, headed to the camp, out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing on my mind, having a good day. I see out by Lake Vista, no, they got all those beer joints, you know, out there in the middle of the woods. And I see neon lights and a arrow blinking coming up on me on the highway. Not thinking nothing. And I just kick the blinker on. My truck, my hand just turns the blinker on in my truck. I look down and my blinker's on. And I was like, what are you doing? Isn't that weird? And And it's like my brain didn't even... I never felt the, I don't know what that was. If it's muscle, muscle memory. memory yeah. <laughs> muscle memory. That's, and, you know, we do have those strange mental blank spots where, and the book tells us, we're without defense of the first drink if we are not in the spiritual solution. But, like, I kicked the blinker off, never hit the brakes on the truck, just kept right on going, went out to the camp. Here's how that progresses, though. So, my, my the the lady I'm dating, we've been dating about a year, Last year she comes out and I go out to the camp a lot by myself. It's our family. My brother owns it and and uh you know, they drink and go out there and have a good time and we go fishing all day. We go back to the camp that night and I'm like, I don't know what's there food wise, you know, so we're getting in there. It's like nine o'clock, ten o'clock at night. We walk in and so I go to the refrigerator to see if there's water or whatever's in there and I'm opening it up and she and she's standing behind me and she goes, Do you you come out here a lot by yourself? And I was like, Yeah all the time like i kind of just come hang out and 
I kind of stood back and there's my brother's all his humongous bottles of crown are on top of the fridge and there's beer jammed. And I'm like, it never even occurs to me. Like I come out here all the time and it, she pointed it out, but I just never thought about it. So I don't know. I get these weird little spots sometimes that are strange, but it used to be weird decades that were strange though. So now it's just kind of a, a blink, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. I guess that is muscle memory though. Yeah, for me, I can remember when I was drinking, somebody, the guy that I was dating at the time asked me to try to control my drinking. So maybe instead of drinking like a whole case a night, try to just drink a six pack. So we made that deal. So I, I take off to the the store and I come back. And of course, I came back with a six pack of 24s. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably, yeah, makes more sense to me. And then he took one. And, you know, like you were talking about those formulas. That relationship like, would have been over right then. Right. And, um, but yeah, the I, and I hated any kind of function where you had to start drinking in the morning. I didn't hate them. Um, A lot of functions day, where you have to start drinking in the morning. Well, you know, parties or brunches and, you know, you have to drink and try to be, a, you know, classy yeah i i couldn't do it because i would open those floodgates and i just couldn't close them back and you know most people can go to these you know like a wedding shower brunch and then go home take a shower period (laughs) i gotta have some not me and so here i am the one that's like six o'clock in the evening and i'm passed out throwing up whatever you know um the whole i just the whole unmanageability part because my friends and i would go out to the bars on some of these occasions and you know here i am in my 20s and i'd get annihilated drunk and i just hit a wall and i'd call my mom come pick me up i mean that was at least responsible right so here i'm in my early 20s and you know standing on the curb people like hey do you need to ride nope my mom's coming to pick me up i mean really you hit a wall i hit the law is what i hit (laughs) um so i you said something earlier and i wanted to bring it up with you guys and it's always it's always fascinated me and and so i had a picture of of alcoholics anonymous sitting in a room i've said this many times a bunch of grumpy old men they're all mad because their wives made them go up there and they can't drink so they're just sitting around cussing their bad luck basically and i was like i don't want any part of that well it couldn't be further from the truth but it kept me out of places like that and i don't know where that image came from i don't know if it's my own head i don't know if i saw a movie or something i don't know what it was but for years that's what i thought and i was like i don't want any part of that junk you know i'm not i'm not doing that so i go to treatment and start going to meetings and do all that stuff and it's of course it's totally different than that but now when i have people and a family member says hey our you know your cousin is having problems with alcohol or whatever a friend or a employee or whoever. I don't know. I don't go, Hey, let's go to the AA meeting and work the 12 steps. You're going to get a sponsor. I don't do all that. And so I keep it real low key because I don't want them to have a preconceived of what it is. 
And so Ben is a great example of that. My friend Ben, we, we just released a thing on him today. But he'll tell you, when all that got started, he came to me. He goes, what do I do? And I said, then come sit with me at a place and listen to some people that have the same problem. And that's all I told him. So he didn't know he was going to AA. He didn't know what he was doing. But when I think when you get in there without that preconceived and you start going, oh, that guy, he's like me, and this person's like me, it, it kind of it's kind of an ease of uh, – I don't know. I, I, you know, you, you get what I'm trying to say. Like, um, um, I think it goes a lot smoother for newer people if they're. Some people may not have those preconceived things, but I did, and I fought it. You know, and I wish I hadn't. I wish I would have went earlier than I did. But do y'all deal with that at all? Uh, yeah, I. I don't know if it was the Hollywood interpretation or what, but it was. Yeah, I thought that. The only thing I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous was I thought people white knuckled, you know, and lamented or bitched about they wanted to drink and they couldn't drink. And somebody would get up and tell their story. And um, there was people that were these sponsor type people and that you had to go around and tell everybody you were sorry. And that's about what I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, furthest from the truth when you get into there. But um or even like they they go oh yeah the meetings at the at the Methodist church and you I go oh I ain't going over there it's just church man. all I heard was meth yeah yeah I'd have left the odist out you so, know but I think I think for me it's like that pride and ego where you know I love the way Nelson Nelson says it best um, about an only an alcoholic could be face down in a ditch and there's other alcoholics like further down in the ditch and looking down on them. And, you know, um, my life was definitely not in any place to be considering myself better than anybody else. But that it's that this is the most humiliating or humbling thing is to walk into those rooms and say that you need help. Then accept it from people that you think are lowest of the scum of the earth. Because that's that's one thing that I think gets beat into our minds all along and and, and maybe even still today that alcoholism, it make it's you're an awful person, it's a personality trait, it's a um you don't have the willpower or you're just scum. It's maybe even today still not looked at as a disease. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to bring Tara, my girlfriend into this, but she doesn't have a background with that as far as her personal life. I mean, she's had family members that have dealt with some of that stuff, but she's been to some sobriety stuff with me and some banquets and meetings. She's gone to a few meetings and stuff. And she's always like it. She said, it fascinates me listening to everyone's story because there's somewhere along the way, they all go something clicked like like you say i wasn't comfortable with my own skin or something very traumatic happened you know of abuse happened or something along that path and she said it, it and i said you know what's crazy i said the more i listen to it it's traumatic to whoever that person is and one of us may go oh that's nothing you know but it's traumatic to that person whatever that is that triggers that you know and um yeah it's 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 a weird uh it's a weird deal but i'm glad to be a part of it me too so i think that's that, that that's for you you hit the nail on the head it's i mean the, the worst day of my life ended up being the yeah biggest blessing 
Yeah, and those images too. Like, I, why would I think that it would just be all old men? Like, there would be no young younger people or any ladies. It would just be all mean old men, like old old. Well, there's nothing cool about AA. I mean, there wasn't. You so know, that's what went through my head. There ain't a cool person in their room. I, I was like, this is the most. And here's my, like you said, alcoholic laying in the ditch, talking crap about the other ones. Here I am living in a truck that wasn't my truck, okay? It <laughs> was squatting. my buddy who was also an alcoholic and still is wide open, but he was nice enough because I worked for him to let me use the truck. <coughs> have no money for food, have no cell phone, have no nothing, okay? I'm literally living in a truck, and I'm looking at the people going in this meeting, and I'm like, eh, I'll just stay in the truck. I think I'm just going to hang out at home here. You know, I, I live in a van down by the river, you know, at this <laughs> yeah. point, and yeah, and I'm going, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to go kill myself in a minute, but I don't want to be a part of just some old grumpy guys sitting around. You know, like, what? It, what? It, what is jacked up about that? It, if it had been the old grumpy guys, I'd have been way better off sitting in there with them than where I was at. But I don't know. I don't know what that is that, that I, you know. So I had a friend one time when I told her that I was going to, you know, hey, it's to the point, you know, I'm going to start getting help at Alcoholics Anonymous. And she's like, this is literally what she told me. She's like, Jennifer, you're not an alcoholic. They're going to laugh you out of the rooms. She said, there's people that go in there that literally can't, they spend all their money on alcohol and they can't buy their kids food or diapers. Um, You're not an alcoholic. You're just bored. And so for a minute there, I pondered what she was saying. Thank God I didn't listen to her. Well, I mean, I think any non-alcoholic would probably think that, that, you know, that's, that I, you, you'd have to, you have to have that, um, that compulsion and that craving in order to understand what an alcoholic really goes through. Cause I mean, you look at some of these, uh, well, we're not going to name any names, but some big timers who are alcoholics and, you know, they're not selling anything to do anything. They just, once they start drinking, they cannot stop. Or when they try to quit, they can't quit, you know, which um, it brings me to a, uh, a point where we can, uh, I'm going to read, and I'm not going to read a whole lot, but, you know, the basis of step one is we learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be had to be smashed. That's it. It's not as, you know, we've given our experience, of course, and, and a lot of different experience across the levels, you know, from paper first steps to um, just going through the big book or just having some, you know, my like my, my daughter telling me what she told me that day, you know, different experiences with step one, but it boils down to that. Um, and I encourage anyone, you know, read the big book in that first one paragraph in the book of agnostic, we agnostics on page 44, the very first paragraph kind of sums it up, you know, and it's what I said earlier. When you try to stop and you can't, normal people don't try to stop. That's just not something normal people do. Normal people don't show up at an AA meeting. That's just not something normal people do. You know, when I was back in the, back when I, Google didn't even exist, so whatever search engine was there in 1997. Um, AOL? Probably. Whatever I was searching, whenever I would search, am I an alcoholic? Well, normal people don't do that. You had to wait on the phone to dial. 
but it <laughs> yeah yeah but it took me um it took me a lot longer you know I would say fifteen years after that moment in order for me to admit that I was an alcoholic and, you know and that my life had become unmanageable and thank God that I did so um, anybody got anything else to add I don't think so all right well just remember this you only have to stay sober today. If you're a newcomer out there and you're listening to this and it all sounds kind of jumbled up or you don't like what you're hearing, but you don't like what you got, you only have to stay sober today. And that's all that I think the people that are at this podcast are doing is just staying sober today. Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. And we appreciate all our listeners out there. And from Bozier City, this is the Grouch and the Brainstorm. <laughs>